0: Hi, I'm Zach Davis, host of Jesuitical. As we've been preparing for Jesuitical's pilgrimage this coming September to Italy, Wondrium has made all the difference. Wondrium is this amazing educational platform with audio and video content on just about any topic, including Italy, presented by experts who all know their stuff. And Wondrium is giving Jesuitical listeners a great offer: a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. Sign up now at wondrium.com/jesuitical, and we hope we'll see you in Italy.
1: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
0: And it's good to be back. Um, My absence was noted by me. I don't know if anyone (laughs) else did, but I had a great vacation, um, spent some time in France. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show, but was well-rested. want to thank uh, producer Sebastian Gomes for filling in dutifully. In my mm-hmm. absence, so.
1: Yeah, he made it look really easy. <laughs> it's, it's a, I don't know why it took us three years to figure out how to podcast.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. And I, I, I feel replaceable is yeah, what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. So. it's That's a good, you know. It's a good place to Keep be. a little fire
0: under you. To, that's right, that's right. Uh, it's coming for this spot in the chair. Um, but we got a great show coming up.
1: We sure do. We are talking to Robert Cruz, who is a musician, but that we're not talking to him about his music. We're talking to him about the case against eating fake meat and 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 as Catholics thinking about uh, our consumption of, of food and animals and plants as as a moral consideration that, that we should be more um, intentional about.
0: Yeah, it's food is such a, a, a fascinating thing to talk about. And I don't think we often bring our, our religious minds to it, right? It's just mm-hmm. something that we sort of mindlessly do um, every day. But I know, I know you're a vegetarian. So this is something you've thought about. Yeah, but
1: memory. honestly, I made that decision once in college. And I've, kind of thought that like, oh, I've done that, I don't really need to think about it. Are you saying about- you
0: don't make that decision every time you choose what to <laughs> no, eat?
1: No, or- <laughs> do- well, I do, but I, I don't really think about the source of my food otherwise. Just, and just because something isn't meat doesn't mean it's ethically produced and good for the environment and the economy. So this was helpful for me too.
0: Yeah, so um, great conversation coming up. Uh, but before that, oh, oh, well, we also should thank our, our guests for giving us a drink recommendation this week. And I gotta admit, I this is about the hardest I work on a cocktail <laughs> um, for for a long time. Um, it's an old fashion which we've yes. had before um, on the show but it, sometimes it, w- the simplest cocktails if you put the most effort into them they yield the best result i think right yes, so- i walked
1: 7 whole minutes to find maraschino cherries
0: <laughs> yes so very important um the the store brand i noticed but mm-hmm. cuz we're we try to keep things on a budget around here but uh cheers
1: cheers All right. So stick around for our conversation with Robert. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. All right, Zach, I know you have spent a lot of time in Italy. Um, so we're going to be relying on your expertise when we go there in September. But I did not want to be the one just constantly asking questions. And so I have been relying on Wondrium to to brush up on my knowledge of Italian architecture and history and the sites that we're going to be seeing in September. And thankfully, they have the Guide to Essential Italy from the Great Courses Plus, which takes you beyond Rome to places like Assisi and Venice, which are part of our itinerary.
0: Yeah. And I think- think you know before you travel to or visit a new place and even if you're going back to somewhere you've already been it's really important to do, do your research you're going to get a lot more out of the the, the whole travel experience i think and you can do that with OneDream, but one dream also has so much to explore beyond travel guides including audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors you can pick up new hobbies with video tutorials on photography cooking crafting how to create a healthier routine um plus documentaries to help you learn more about the world um and so so much more
1: Yes, so we want you to sign up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering our listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. And to get this offer, you need to visit our special URL. That is wondrium.com slash Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com Jesuitical. Sign up today. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
0: So this is something you've probably seen uh, in your news feeds. This is reported widely in the secular press, but we haven't gotten a chance to talk about it here on this podcast. Um, But we're talking about something that happened last month when San Francisco's Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione announced that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, was barred from receiving communion in her home diocese because of her vocal support for abortion rights.
1: So the Archbishop made that uh, announcement on May 20th, and, and since then, some other bishops have have said that they would enforce the ban in their own diocese, But importantly, uh, Cardinal Wilton Gregory, who has jurisdiction over Washington D.C., where Nancy Pelosi presumably goes to mass a fair amount of time when she's on Capitol Hill, said he would not enforce this ban.
0: Yeah, and Archbishop Cordelone, um explained his decision in an exclusive interview with America on the Glory Purvis podcast, which you can go listen to now. Um, that. The timing of the move uh, had nothing to do with the recently leaked Supreme Court decision on potentially overturning Roe v. Wade, although I think the rest of the world was primed for that because it's in the news right now. Um, But he did say that in recent years, uh, Nancy Pelosi's advocacy for codifying Roe v. Wade into federal law has become, quote, more extreme and aggressive. And after several failed attempts to talk with her privately, he decided that he could not, in good conscience, let the status quo continue.
1: Right. And so this is not a new fight. Uh, we spent much of 2021 uh, on this podcast talking about the the debate among bishops about whether they, as a conference, should issue a national policy with regards to pro-choice politicians, prompted uh, by the election of President Joe Biden, a Catholic who is supportive of abortion rights. And so the responses to, to Archbishop uh decision fell into pretty predictable uh, categories.
0: Yeah, and you know a national. Policy or statement or something like that never ended up coming to fruition about President Biden, and, but I thought maybe we could just quickly go through um, a range of opinions that people have been having about this. Right? So, um, why this makes sense to some people, why this seems like a terrible idea to others, and kind of just go through a number of the reactions you might be having to this news.
1: Yeah, um, and one place I want it, I like to start in this conversation because I have talked to friends and family <laughs> about this because they 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 saw the news and had opinions about it. And I just think it's important to start from the position of, I don't know, respecting the archbishop's motives. Uh, he said he, in good conscience, could not continue with the status quo. And and if, you know, if you care about respecting conscience, you also have to respect his conscience. And I, I would say not presume the worst and more, most political motives.
0: And also, I to pick up on that, it is, regardless of what you think, I it is sort of like, this is the way the church is structured. This is it within the purview of the bishop to kind of make decisions on, right? And so, you know, Nancy Pelosi is a high profile figure and this is a public case. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, despite what their disagreements might be, uh, he is Nancy, Cordiglione is Nancy Pelosi's archbishop. And so this is sort of like happening, at least in the locale where it's supposed to be happening. Now, whether you agree with the way it's being handled is, is a different story. But I think those are important sort of ground rules to set up.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so let's go through some of the the reasons why he might do this that um, are, are defensible or, or at least seen as defensible to, to some Catholics. And one is, you know, abortion The church teaches that abortion is a grave evil. And even though he said that this was not connected to the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, Nancy Pelosi is going to be in a a position where she can actually affect laws in new ways. You know, when when, you know, abortion was decided at the court level, there wasn't a lot of room for democracy to affect abortion policy. So. Before, what might have been seen as just like abortion rhetoric on on Nancy Pelosi's part will, could soon be, you know, leading to changes in abortion policy.
0: Yeah, and this isn't the first time that the church has ever, you know, denied someone communion or applied um, sort of uh, sacramental sanctions um, towards someone uh, in 1962, Archbishop Joseph Rummel of New Orleans. Um, denied communion, but also went a step further and excommunicated three Catholics in his archdiocese who resisted uh, the integration of Catholic schools. Um, and even today, you know, this isn't the only instance, it's it's probably the most high profile, uh, but it's not the only instance of a bishop uh, barring someone from communion.
1: Right. And, and another um, argument I think you will hear on the pro barring side, is that this this idea that it causes scandal and it hurts the the unity of the church for for catholics to see the church teach one thing to see a politician very blatantly <laughs> advocate for the opposite position and to see no response from the catholic church you know the catholic church teaches you should not present yourself for communion if you are in a great a, a, a state of grave sin And to see, you know, one of the most or, you know, two of the most high profile Catholic politicians in the land advocating for abortion rights and the church seeming to be, you know, just letting it happen for some Catholics could make them doubt whether the church really believes what it teaches.
0: And I think uh, Archbishop Cordelia would tell you is that this isn't a punishment, even though it looks like punishment, sounds like punishment, et cetera. Really, you know, this and this has roots in scripture in that. This is sort of seen as a pastoral response with the end goal of bringing someone back into communion. It's not good to someone to give them communion, like if, to give them medicine if their soul is quote unquote dead from sin, right? Um, and so this is, I think that's the way Aquinas talks about this. And so this is really not seen as a punishment, much more as a pastoral remedy.
1: Right. And so now, you know, I, we can get into this. I, I don't think either of us are, fall. On that side, we tried to steal man the argument for our listeners, but uh, I think we we also see why this is um, could be pastorally harmful, and I mean, and frankly, politically inept <laughs> um, of for for the archbishop to do. Um, and I think you know, number one, people are being inundated by culture war uh, discourse and politics. At every turn, and to see the church seemingly to fall into that um, is really disheartening because I, I think most people kind of struggle to see to make the leap from oh this isn't punishment this is actually pastoral it it seems like punishment for a political for a, a political <laughs> <Yeah>. action
0: <laughs> I I also felt like it if this is really a pastoral thing why was it so public um, I it, it, most observers felt like oh there was. there was a public statement, there was a media rollout, um, which America, uh, played a huge part in. And so I don't want to downplay that, but it, it it felt like sort of very political for that reason, right? If this is truly pastoral and, you know, Archbishop Cordelia, said that he tried to have private conversations, but I still think that, you know, there, there would have, there could have been ways to do this without such like a, a, a big show about it. And that really felt kind of yucky to yeah. a lot of observers. I, I also think a lot of people's just sort of gut reaction when they hear this news, particularly if you're like, are you serious? Is because it, it does feel hypocritical um, in the sense that the church <laughs> teaches that a lot of things are grave sins, right? It It, it is... Not the case that abortion is the only or even the most important moral issue within the church's social teaching. And so particularly when we're 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 also seeing Catholic politicians sort of, you know, pr- uh, promoting things like the death penalty or uh, lack of gun control and. Uh, a, a number of things. Right. And there's not ever a discussion about whether we're going to bar those people from communion. It, it just it feels hypocritical. And people kind of are sniffing that out, at least, I think.
1: Yeah. And even, the, you know, the most pro-life politicians, uh, staunch Republicans, v- very few of them are supportive of of abortion laws that do not have exceptions for incest and rape. And and the church teaches that that there should not be those exceptions in, in any abortion law that that it's It's a tragedy, but life begins at conception and it needs to be protected from that point where do you where do you draw the line as as a, as a bishop or you know, who's in and who's out because <laughs> unless you're going all the way and enforcing uh, church teaching as the law of the land, then you're you are complicit in their view in the sin of abortion,
0: yeah. and you know, i I should I'll just say like cards on the table. I don't really find myself. Any type of fan of Nancy Pelosi as a politician, Um, just not someone that whose style or that really appeals to me, um, or her politics necessarily. I I still would err towards the side of what Pope Francis has described, and you know he's told our colleague Jerry O'Connell that he's never denied communion to anyone, and he has probably been presented with situations where he's dealing with some pretty messed up people and politicians. Yes,
1: he he lived under a military. Dictatorship.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if the Pope can give out communion, if Oscar Romero could give out communion to all these people, um, I I think it raises questions about whether it's you know pastorally prudent to do that. Certainly in this country, and we, people always say that this is in, in the Church, in the global Church, that this is uniquely American phenomena. Right? It, it, abortion is legal in to some extent in a number of countries throughout the world, and and the Church doesn't have this fight with politicians, and it feels. Particularly neurotic here, and so I would I would lean towards Pope Francis's response. I think on this,
1: yeah, which is a good lead-in to our second story this week. If if you are looking for more more church leaders in the mold of Pope Francis, uh, you are in luck.
0: That's right. Um, there was. Some big news. We won't get too much into it here. Um, if you want to check out Inside the Vatican, they're they're breaking down this big new announcement of uh, Pope Francis is elevating uh, Bishop Robert McElroy of San Diego to the College of Cardinals.
1: Right. So that means, you know, he's a cardinal, which means he can vote for the next pope. So he will be instrumental in in shaping the the the. The future church, um, and he said in his press conference uh, this week that he thinks the reason he was elevated, which came as a complete shock to him, uh, is because he has been kind of implementing Pope Francis's vision for the church, which is you know more pastoral, more focused on inclusion and reaching out to those on the margins of the church.
0: Yeah, and as I said, you can learn more about this elevation, and also there were I think twenty something or so other people that were elevated to the College of Cardinals. It's a big deal for the church, as you said. These people pick the next pope, um, and that will come someday, right when. Francis uh, either dies or retires. Um, And so it's a big deal and you can learn more about it on Inside the Vatican.
1: And now stick around for our conversation with Robert Cruz. Joining us from Shreveport, Louisiana is Robert Cruz. Robert is a musician, father, husband, and the author of a piece in America magazine titled Dear Catholic Vegetarians, Eating Fake Meat Isn't Going to Save the Planet. Welcome to Jesuitical, Robert. Thanks for having me. So good to have you here. Um, and I, I've, I so I put my cards on the table. I'm a, I'm a pescatarian, um, but
0: uh, I am not. really anything. So other carts on the table.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, but I've, I've never been a fan of the fake meat. I, you know, I didn't give up meat so I could have uh, Mm (laughs) a not great tasting substitute. So I was, I was a fan of your piece. Uh, but, but just selfishly, I want to know was, was Jesus also a pescatarian? We hear a lot about him eating fish and I can't like picture him eating, you know, other meat.
2: (laughs) Pres- presumably, they would have had lamb at some point during the yes. year. Um, yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, though, because it, it brings up the the point of of how much meat we consume in the modern world compared to the ancient world. I mean, and, and some of that is is due to I mean, poverty. Was what we would call poverty is more widespread in ancient times, um, but just the 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 contours of a diet have changed so much since since those times.
0: Where something like meat would have been reserved for you know festivals or special occasions or, well right I or mean when, when, you, when you don't
2: have when you don't have refrigeration right your ways of preserving the meat um, are are limited I mean you, you can dry it out um, which like I mean the mongols had dried horse meat that they carried with them on their, on their conquests but um, in meat is a special occasion thing you 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 have to you have to slaughter the animal and then basically consume it um, and you can you can even see that in, in Leviticus and in, in the prescriptions for, for the sacrifice uh, sacrifices in the temple of what would be eaten right away and, and by the priests and eaten right away by the by the people and and so on and so forth.
0: Now I'm wondering um, we're sort of talking at a time where because of increased concern about climate, this is obviously what what spurred your peace, A lot of younger Catholics, uh, particularly those that are impacted by Pope Francis's environmental action, are sort of reassessing. Their relationship to to food or meat um, for a number of reasons. I'm wondering if you could give us like what are some some basic uh, reasons that Catholics should at least pay attention to to their diet from an ethical standpoint?
2: Sure. I mean, b- because what we eat is is ultimately in some in many ways is ultimately an economic issue, and, and economics touches on everything. Um, and so the, our food choices get tied to economic choices to e- equality choices to all sorts of social justice issues um, so for instance um, the the whole corporatized agriculture industrialized agriculture that's behind much of the food produced um, in America certainly and to a certain extent even throughout the world um, has certain economic questions I think a Catholic uh, an informed Catholic, well versed in, in the Church's so- social encyclicals, should have questions about and concerns about.
1: Could you give us an example of some of those questions for for a Catholic who has never really thought about what what he or she eats as a as a moral issue? What are what are some of like the basic questions we should be asking when we're forming our diets and buying food?
2: So, from from an environmental standpoint, there's the question of well, how is this food produced? Um, if you're if if we just limit the discussion to meat how was this animal raised? Uh, in what conditions was it raised? The con- how do those conditions affect the animal? How do those conditions affect the, the rest of the environment? If you're eating most conventionally produced pork in this country, what we would term, I would term industrial agriculture, that, that pork is most likely produced in a confined feedlot, uh, was referred to as a CAFO, uh, a confined animal feeding operation, uh, not a farm, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough, but a CAFO. Um, and it has not really ever seen daylight. Uh, it's in, uh, basically stainless steel conditions for its entire life. Uh, if you look particular in, in the state of Iowa, which is one of the highest pork producing states in the country, um, the, I mean, animals poop, poop has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you have hundreds, thousands of pigs in a confined facility. They're still gonna poop. And that poop has to be taken somewhere. So the the there are these massive uh, manure sludges that that have to, to process and and expel this poop, and th- it has wreaked havoc on large parts of, uh, for instance, like I brought up Iowa, on large parts of the Iowa ecology, on on the water table, on. Um, some wet some wetlands and, and and lots of other things in the United States uh, meat processing so there for food production meat production there's two parts there's the the people that grow the animal and then there's the processors, which is how the animal goes from animal form to packaged form to meat form and um, in in this country, the meat processing is tied up in in large part by not even a handful of corporations, uh, most of which are internationally owned. It's hard to get into this into this system. If you're if you're a smaller producer um, with uh, principles that lie outside the the mainstream of industrial ag, it can be difficult to find processing facilities to to get your meat to market. And so, when we're buying products, uh, meat products specifically, are we buying things that support this very almost pyramid system? Are we buying products that are more rooted in principles of subsidiarity and and localness?
1: So I think a, a common response to this is that I don't know we we can't go back to <laughs> everyone being uh, small farmers uh, in in the United States and and modern agriculture has enabled us to feed a ballooning world population and so how do you how do you make or consider those trade-offs of like this miracle that we were able to feed billions of people in the 20th century um, and the maybe adverse consequences for local economies and for our, our diets.
2: Sure. And that, that's a highly complex issue. I, I, would, I would question the assumption that it was only through mechanized industrial agriculture that we were able to feed the world. I think and and that it's impossible to go back to a world of small, small producers, I believe that it is indeed possible to decentralize the food system and still feed everybody. Um, many, and especially when you consider the, the methods of production that are used in more industrial settings, uh, do not produce as nutrient dense as a product. Um, there, there was a study, I think, the University of California, that uh, several years ago that was looking at uh, comparing grass-fed or grass-finished beef with conventionally raised beef, uh, which is which is usually um, fed uh, in, in more of a feedlot setting. And the grass-fed beef had a higher nutrient density. It, it, it was just plain old better for you, and because it was more nourishing, um, and and so, are we? I think we need to ask ourselves: Are we feeding the world nutritionally, or are we just stuffing the world um, with with, in, with these industrially produced products? Um, and I mean, na- nature is created in such a way that it, it 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 wants to persevere; it wants to to thrive and grow. And so, these agricultural practices that work in harmony with nature do have the potential to feed the world because it's how nature itself produces.
0: Now, we're at a time when lots of Catholics are sort of giving up on meat altogether, shifting to vegetarianism. I I shouldn't say a lot. There are some that um, for either ecological reasons, economic reasons, they're kind of looking at the way all of this is set up and trying to opt out of it. And look right to our left is... This great thing that called beyond meat or impossible burgers that um, they taste just like it, um, and you don't have to worry about the ethical implications of either uh, animal welfare or environmental degradation. Um, at least that's what you know. The, my my assumption is 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 it
2: too good to be true? It's hard to make that sort of blanket statement because all all these non meat meats are are produced in different ways, but they are still non natural in, industrial processes. That doesn't mean I I don't believe that fake meat is like always a morally wrong thing, um, but I don't I the idea that it's some sort of panacea um, that this is this is the future of food um, that's marketing <laughs> um, plain and simple that and I'm ha- having worked in grocery long enough I'm skeptical of marketing because you can sell anything and 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 that that makes me wonder. Now I will offer the caveat that, um, for me, like being against fake meat isn't necessarily a slam against being vegetarian or vegan. I mean, th- th- those are two different, two different issues. Um, and I, I think it's important to keep that, that distinction.
0: Now, I, I guess I'm always just skeptical of anything that like, th- it sounds like a solution without requiring any sacrifice of us, or at least that's how it's being billed to us, right? Like, Oh, you can just like, you can, do better for the environment without really changing any of
2: your habits. You just got to, you just got to buy the right thing. You, can just, you just have to change, change your tastes and it would, right. it would work. And, and I think what that, that's a good point because that, that I think gets to the, as Catholics, I think that gets to the heart of the consumption issue of the consumerist issue. Consumption, consumption is in many ways rooted in desire and, and so much of Catholic teaching throughout the centuries concerns itself with the, Cultivation of proper desires, and the negation, killing off of improper desires, and so we have to ask ourselves: in a, with our food, are we are we cultivating a proper desire for consumption, a proper proper level of consumption, um, or are we just mindlessly filling ourselves because we're keyed into this sort of Madison Avenue advertising? You need it mindset.
0: Mm. I want to pivot a little bit to um, something you and your family did and uh, moving to a, uh, a small regenerative farm um, to kind of, I don't know, at least resist pushback on this industry a little bit. Um, could you first explain, you know, what is a regenerative farm and maybe how that looks different than a
2: large scale industrial one? Sure. Regenerative agriculture uh, our ag- is an agricultural practice that is rooted in the rhythms of nature itself. Um, it is practicing agriculture so that it is in tune with nature. And this is in contrast to um, what is often referred to as industrial agriculture, the, this idea that through science we can conquer nature. And so, so industrial agriculture um, seeks to, I would argue, over maximize profits per acre. Now in all farming, you're concerned about profits per acre and and, and amount of production per acre because that's how you make a living. Um, But in in a regenerative agricultural framework, there's a natural limit to that. Um, I could put more and more chickens on this ground, but at some point I'm gonna lose the ground because there will just be too much much manure for carbon that, that is available. Industrial agriculture does away with that quote unquote Problem with confined feeding operations, with theoretically um, offloading the the waste products and, and and so on.
1: Can you talk about how that um, has this experience of having uh, some uh, a regenerative farm of your own has changed your relationship uh, to to your food when you when you sure. know the chicken that you're eating and or maybe and, <laughs> well and we, don't, we don't
2: name all of them because. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but w- but the, the kids did name the pigs, um, so we'll have to deal with that in a couple of days. Um, it's it's heightened my appreciation. I mean, I, I always had a great appreciation for for actual farmers, like people people who regenerate farmers who farm to scale, and which which we are nowhere near. I mean, we I only have like maybe sixty chickens on property right now, which is nothing. It's also strengthened my appreciation for a lot of the the economic issues related to it. We talked earlier about the, the processing issue. We don't have access to the big industrial system. We don't have Tyson coming to gather our chickens and take them off to the Tyson chicken processing plant. So we have to find our own processing for these things. And there are all sorts of state regulations and stuff uh, and federal regulations that are, are, are governing this. Um, so it, it makes me aware and appreciative of that. Um, but I think most of all, it's giving me a me and and my wife and and the rest of our family a deeper appreciation for a sense of place in a in a very concrete way um like we're we're set to go take a a trip next week to go visit visit family that we haven't seen for a while but that's hard to do when you've got 60 chickens 40 turkeys and so on like dependent on your on their survival with you being present and and so so that has really helped i think ground us locally. and the act of farming is or uh, really just raising livestock it is an act of faith um, it, it is, it, is a, it has forced us to even more put our put our faith in God and even even in a little thing like in, in the mass of, in the mass itself we talk about um, fruit of the earth and work of human hands in the offertory um that that takes on a much more real uh its it's a much more real thing if you when,
0: if you actually work with your hands if you actually work with your hands and
2: <laughs> it's it's a sacrificial thing already mm-hmm. um and i and I think the with as as mechanized and as urbanized and as detached we've gotten from food, I think we've lost a lot of that um and th- and that's not to say that like everyone should go get their five acres and a, a and a mule. I I think it is imperative for us to regain our connection to the earth that from from which we came either poetically or, or or literally take, take your pick. But I mean, uh, Genesis, Genesis ties us to the earth in a very visceral way for a reason.
0: Yeah, we are dust and we're going back there. Right. Yeah. Um, I wonder, uh, I want to stay on this relationship with the animals themselves and specifically your animals. You do you guys eat um, exclusively from your own farm or no, we,
2: we don't um, because we, we, we don't produce um, enough just for us. Um, I mean, like we also don't have the, the land, uh, or the facilities for instance, to raise beef. Sure. Sure. In terms of meat, we grow chicken, um, and geese. Uh, those are our red meat. Um, but then we, and we'll have, uh, uh, after this week we'll, we, we've ra- we've grown out two pigs and so we'll have some pork in our freezer for a year our goal is to have as much produced by ourselves as possible um but what what we don't meat wise what we don't produce for ourselves we do source locally
0: but it, i imagine that uh <laughs> eating meat that you've raised uh mm-hmm. has to change your relationship to
2: that either that yeah. i mean that animal the way like the way you eat meat in general when you have to kill your own food <laughs> and there's, there's no being around it, but when you, when you when you have to to kill and process your own food that that heightens your respect for it i mean it is it's no longer a thing that can be thrown away um and, and and even for the for the chickens that we we we've had processed by uh, another local processor like we still invested in these chickens these chickens 11 weeks Of our lives into these into these birds or in the case of the pigs a good good, uh seven months uh into these animals and it's 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 hard to explain um but it's a very profound connection and it's a very deep respect um there you're you can't be as cavalier with waste um as as i think we we once were um as i think Unfortunately, many people still are.
1: Yeah. So to come full circle circle here um, for Catholics who are listening to this and and maybe feel inspired to to change, change their diet, to make it um, more environmentally friendly, more ethical. um, What are what what is some advice that you would have have for them for, you know, first steps to take?
2: start start small start local um and and just i I think the first step is is growing in consciousness um which which sounds awfully zen or jesuitical depending on how you want (laughs) to want to look at it um but but growing in consciousness of where your food comes from Um, and then also growing in consciousness of what is available to you locally you can opt in to a system that is not industrial ag, that is not um, consumption driven. Um, It's out there and you can find it. Um, Regenerative Farmers of America runs a website with a listing of uh, regenerative farms all over the country. Uh, So you can find places that are close to you um, to start sourcing some of your meat.
1: So I I also feel like in the United States today, this is seen as kind of of like Something for privil- privileged people, like it's the Whole Foods movement that the people who have money can buy organic and go to their local farmer's market. But that, that might not be the reality for a lot of people. But you're saying there are things you can do even without a lot of money.
2: Whole Foods is actually, I have a huge frustration with Whole Foods because it, it is this sort of, I don't know, bourgeoisification of, of organic. It, it, it makes organic a privileged thing and it doesn't have to be. Yes, it's more expensive. Yes, locally sourced meat is going to be more expensive. I I I can I can tell you you're not going to find 99 cent a pound chicken that's regeneratively ra- raised. But there's a reason for that. And there's a reason the chicken in the supermarket is 99 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. Um and so then, then then it comes down in many ways to choice. We've we've made choices uh for for our family to prioritize certain things, just like any family does and one of those priorities is the sourcing of our food um but in order to do that we've had to give other things up um we we don't have like the the Netflix the Hulu the, those sort of things um we have a very small house for <laughs> my wife and I and three children um but um so there there's a there's a there's a trade-off a- and i think any of us, wherever we're at, can make choices in a more positive direction.
0: Yeah, Robert, uh, thanks so much. You've given cert- at least me a lot to think about. Um, I, I I certainly could be a lot more food conscious, and uh, maybe maybe give my wife less of a hard time when she tries to push me to be more food <laughs> conscious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for now, we got We got to leave it here. But we do have one final question for you. Uh, we ask all our guests, um, and that's if you could canonize one person. Living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional
2: or real, who would it be and why? That's a great question. I Then I I, I would argue for Peter Malren. There you go. I, I thought you were going to go with Peter Malren. <laughs> yeah, um. and, and 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 in particular for me because he did have a very large, very strong. I mean, he grew, He was a farmer. His family were farmers of like however hundreds of children his parents had, but they 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 were farmers and he, he had that agricultural instinct um, and um it in many ways at its at its heart the Catholic the Catholic worker movement is is rooted to agriculture um because everything comes back to food
0: all right Peter Maron uh, that's our i will say it is our second Peter Morin canonization in a month too that's, see
2: we, we've got a cause already
0: <laughs> that's all right Someone, I think we can pull I think we can pull it off we can pull it off <laughs> talk to the powers the pee um the what's the if people want to find out more um about um the opt-in farm or the regenerative uh, food movement, where can, where can they go, Robert?
2: Sure. So, um, our, our, our own little, little farm set is opt-infarm.com. Um, um, but I, I would really recommend people check out regenerative farmers of America. Um, it, right on their homepage, they have a map, um, of the United States with little pins for regenerative farms all over the country. Um, and, and they have, they have tons of information for consumers, uh, with links to studies, um, to, UN reports to all, all sorts of things. Awesome.
1: Great. Thank you, Robert. And again, the Thank article for America is, Dear Catholic Vegetarians, Eating Fake Meat Isn't Going to Save the Planet. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. Oh, here's
0: a little story for you. Let's sit right down and talk it through. You'll a little love and give it back again.
1: Is it supposed to be this hard? You're tired of sitting here on your own Yeah, you're tired of the feeling that you need someone you found your peace no matter where you are You somewhere At
0: Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible.
1: And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach?
0: Want to, as we often do, remind our listeners that the show is made possible by our Patreon supporters. And we have some new ones this week that we want to give a special shout out to. So thank you so much to Felipe Tacla, Beck Hall, Kevin Haworth, and Rafael Fernandez. Thank you so much for listening to the show, for supporting it. Um, if you want to be like them and get access to um, special articles and newsletters from Ashley and I, uh, early, episode, early access to some episodes, exclusive interviews with um, that Ashley and I do with some of the staff around America, um, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Media.
1: And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, Zach, you have one from your travels.
0: I do. So I um, got to spend some time in France with a uh, lot of friends. Um, it was a great, great trip. Um, but I took a sort of solo date trip by myself to visit the Taizé community. Um, and Taizé is a, an ecumenical monastic community um, that was um, founded by a... Protestant um, but is now includes like Protestant uh, monks Catholic priests are part of the community Orthodox are part of the community um, you've probably heard some of their chants before if you've been around Catholic circles long enough um, it's been it's been like a bucket list item for me to get there and so I was really happy to do it um, but while I was praying there it got me thinking that um, wow this place just feels holy and it got me thinking about other places that I've been to in my life where I thought oh you know this place also feels holy and so I've got I got a list of three. Um, and I, I want to hear yours. Um, I've got, so Taizé is one of them. Uh, another is Galilee. Um, that was incredible. And also Assisi, um, which we're going to, uh, this September. So, um. Those three, for me, have just like the air feels different there. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that.
1: So the one that comes immediately to mind is the monastery that's at Montserrat. So this is in Spain, um, and if you are a, a close follower of Saint Ignatius, you've probably have heard the name before. This is where it was part of his journey to founding the Society of Jesus, um, and it's where he laid down his sword um, at the at the feet of Our Lady of Montserrat. And so when I went on a pilgrimage with American Media. Back in oh well, maybe 2015, uh, this was one of the stops, and i had, I had not really heard of it, and so it really it wasn't on my bu- bucket list. But as soon as I got there, I was like overwhelmed with just that sense that you're that you're describing. It's it's at the top of these uh, mountains. Mountsrot means serrated mountains, and so they're just very striking. And you get up there, and there's an abbey where you can just feel the history of the place. They they also have beautiful chanting. You feel like you are you're not in New York anymore, and you I just. It was a place that just invited you to really deep contemplation about, um, yeah, about the place and about your faith. Well, I,
0: similarly, I was thinking about okay, what are some of the like characteristics that at least the places that I have share? Um, and, you know, in terms of putting you in your place, like, one of the things for me is you get a sense of all the people that have also come there to offer up their prayers, not just the people that are there with you, but like over the centuries, the people that have traveled to to Galilee, to Assisi, and you know, for decades to Taizé, it, it, you can sort of feel the weight of all those prayers that people have brought. And it really is a humbling experience. And, and one that I think, at least for me, invites me into bringing my own. But they're different than retreats because I feel like retreats are very much inward focused and you're sort of like uh, sort of going away to find God. and. These pilgrimage sites have this like going out to find God type of method to them, and I feel like both have you know a history in the Christian tradition,
1: and both are very Ignatian, like mm-hmm. a, a part of the spiritual exercises or Ignatian contemplation is like setting the scene, like that that matters too. It's it's not just feelings. Like we are we are incarnational beings and so place matters and and it's one thing to imagine those places. It's another thing to to be there, to be where St. Ignatius walked. And to be like, so he walked here because there was already a church here. And so why did the people who founded that church walk there? Like there must there's gotta be some human reason that you are drawn to these places.
0: Yeah. And you know, I will say I think it's important to say like they don't have to be these international grand historical places that have to have some type of spiritual meaning to you. Right. Like I've got Places in my hometown, places in, in Prospect Park in Brooklyn that have a, a certain like uh, a similar air where like the 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 it's a liminal space. It feels like you can get closer to God there. Um, and so I'd encourage our listeners to kind of maybe just take take a few minutes and, and reflect on that. Are, are there places that you've been um, or that you have, you know, from your life where it's been easy for you to connect to God in that physical space um, someplace that you can go um, if it's, you know in a reasonable geographic distance, maybe maybe hit it up in the next couple of months, or um, I mean, we're going on pilgrimage. So this is a shameless plug. You can join us <laughs> in Italy. If you want to go to one of my top three places, Assisi, you're you're welcome to join us. Um, but just take some time and, and, and reflect on that because I think it's important to name these spots, right? Because then we can draw out, okay, what are their characteristics that make it easier for God to speak to us there?
1: All right. I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can find us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.